Welcome to the Imaginal Inspirations podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. My guest today is Bruce Grayson, who is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, and whom I've known for many years. He was the immediate successor to the Carlson Chair after the legendary Ian Stevenson, who founded the Department of Perceptual Studies in the University of Virginia in, I think, 1967. Ian is famous for his meticulous studies of children who remember previous lives, but he also researched near-death experiences in India. Bruce was a co-founder and president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and editor of the Journal of Near-Death Studies for many years. I have his early handbook of near-death studies in my library. Bruce's research for the past four decades has focused on near-death experiences and particularly their after effects and implications. He established the standard and widely used Grayson scale on NDEs. His academic work has been translated into 20 languages and used in hundreds of studies worldwide. He's published more than 100 scholarly articles about near-death experiences and gives regular addresses at international conferences on the matter. After is Bruce's first book to bring his groundbreaking research to general readers and has been widely reviewed. Bruce will be a keynote speaker at the 2021 Beyond the Brain Conference in November. And he's speaking on his book at a meeting on April the 23rd, which we're doing with the Institute of Noetic Sciences. So Bruce, um, very warm welcome to Imaginal Inspirations. Well, thank you, David. I'm delighted to be here with you today. I'm going to plunge straight in and ask you about a shaping moment involving your choice of work. Well, I would have to say that was when I uh, met Raymond Moody in 1975 when he published his book, Life After Life. Let me give a little background to this. I was raised in a scientific household where there was no talk ever about anything religious or spiritual. We just dealt with the material world. And I assumed that when you die, that's the end of it. And that was fine with me. And I had occasionally come in contact with um, patients as a, in my work as a psychiatrist who related stories like near-death experiences that I just found totally impossible. So I dismissed them as uh, you know, delusions or hallucinations. And then in 1975, I met Raymond Moody just as his book was being published. And I read his book, which described the near-death experience and gave us that term. And I was stunned to find that this was not just something that a couple of crazy patients had told me, but it's something that was part of a worldwide phenomenon where millions of people were talking about these. And being a materialistic scientist, I just couldn't make any sense of it. And yet, as a scientist, I couldn't just pretend it didn't exist. So I thought it was my responsibility to um, investigate it, to try to understand it. And 50 years later, I'm still trying to understand it. Well, that was certainly um, a shaping moment. Reading Raymond's book was, was, a, was a very important book for you to, to read, as you just told us. Yeah. Were there any other books at that early stage which influenced you? Well, I, uh, you mentioned uh, Ian Stevenson, and certainly Ian was the reason why I went to the University of Virginia uh, to study psychiatry. Um, I had read several of his works on uh, both the reincarnation studies, which was his primary work, but also other parapsychological work um, with a variety of phenomena, including what we now call near-death experiences. Of course, he didn't have the word for that, 
before Moody wrote his book. So we call them out-of-body experiences or deathbed visions or apparitions. And I just found it just incredible that a respected psychiatrist, as he was, would be studying these phenomena. So I joined him at the University of Virginia to try to study this work. And when I started that, of course, I didn't believe that there was anything spiritual going on. Uh, I just assumed it was, it was something the brain was doing to us, you know, a trick of the brain. And I started studying these phenomena to try to figure out how and maybe why the brain would do this to us. And the more I learned about near-death experiences in particular, the more I was convinced this is not something the brain is doing to us. It's something that we're, we're, ha we're having in spite of the brain, not because of the brain. Well, that, of course, is really the nub of the whole matter uh, in relation to near-death experiences and different interpretations that are brought to bear, which, I mean, you deal with in very great detail. I imagine that both um, Ray, Raymond Moody and Ian acted somewhat as mentors to you at that point, but I think your father was also an important mentor to you. Yes, yes. My father was a, was a chemist, and he raised me to believe that science was the way we answer all our questions. But he was also a very profound skeptic uh, of, the, of the worst type or the best type. Now, as Freud said, if one regards oneself as a skeptic, it's good from time to time to be skeptical about your own skepticism. Indeed. Uh, my father certainly was. You know, he, he, um, he loved ideas that would shake up our, our thoughts. And sometimes they were crazy ideas that didn't pan out. And sometimes they did. But he taught me that that's the way science makes its great breakthroughs, by studying things we don't understand. So I you know, went into this work on near-death experiences with great relish because I knew we couldn't understand them, thinking it would lead to great breakthroughs in brain science. And in fact, it led me in a different direction entirely, uh, which I'd like to think my father would have approved of, because it was basically following the data. It was going where the data lead us. Well, and you were very much following you know, his guidance and advice. And did, did you, can you remember any particular piece of advice from Ian Stevenson that springs to mind? Because, I mean, he was an extraordinary man. He was. He was. Uh, you know, he was very meticulous. And he was very concerned about people sort of misusing his data, sensationalizing it, and making all sorts of uh, broad conclusions that were not justified by the data. So, for example, he studied thousands of cases of very young children, two, three, four years old, who described in great detail their past lives. And in many cases, we could corroborate what they were saying. But he would never say in public that these proved that we have multiple lives. He, the best he would do was to say that the data are suggestive, but not compelling. Indeed. Yes, well, I think that was the title of his book, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. Yes, yes. You know, and I knew them very well. And I kept trying to pin them down and, and commit to that, what, what, he, what he actually believed. And he would not, he would not ever say that. Uh, he would say, you know, the data cannot compel you. They, they strongly lead you in that direction. But the, the question is still open. You might say this is a case for beyond reasonable doubt. But equally, he's absolutely right that there, there are competing explanations and it's, yes. you, can't, you can't completely rule out um, right. other potential explanations. And many of those were, were uh, paranormal explanations that were just as uh, frightening to the materialist as reincarnation would be. For example, the idea of possession, children accessing some universal mind, things that would just terrify materialists.
Well, that's the sort of super ESP, which, as you say, uh, is a frightening enough concept yes. because you, yes. you still have to step beyond your, your usual boundaries of thinking. Right. And then, uh, Bruce, what about a key moment of insight in your work in relation to the nature of consciousness? And I, I wonder whether your early experience um, that you talk about at the beginning of your book um, might come in here. It does and it doesn't. Uh, this was um, in my first weeks as a psychiatrist, actually. I was asked to uh, investigate a, or to interview a patient who had been admitted to the hospital in the emergency room with an overdose. And um, I was in the hospital cafeteria eating dinner when the, my pager went off to tell me this patient was waiting. And it startled me and I dropped my fork and spilled some spaghetti sauce on my tie. Uh, I didn't have time to change, so I quickly put on a lab coat and covered it up so no one could see it. I went down to see the patient and she was unconscious. I could not arouse her. So uh, fortunately her roommate had brought her in and was waiting to see me in a different room. So I went to the, where the roommate was and spent about 15 minutes talking to her, getting background information about the patient. And when I finished, I went back to see the patient who was still unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight and I came back the following morning after she had awoken to interview her. Now, at that time, she was awake, but just barely. She was very, very groggy. And I started to introduce myself, and she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of stopped me short. I couldn't imagine how she could have known me. So I said to her, you know, I, I thought you were unconscious last night when I came to see you. And then she opened her eyes and said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, that, that just blew my mind. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. That could only have happened if she had left her body and you know, followed me down the hall. And that was clearly impossible. As far as I could tell, I was my body. How could you leave it? Well, she sensed my confusion. So she wanted to tell me about the conversation I had with the roommate, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, all my questions and her answers. And the clincher was she mentioned the spaghetti stain on my tie. Now, I have carefully covered it up, but the room where I was interviewing her roommate was very hot. This was in the 1970, before there was air conditioning in the hospital. So I opened my, my lab coat so I wouldn't sweat so much. So for a period of about 10 minutes, the spaghetti stain was visible. And somehow she knew about that. I just could not understand that. But my job was to help her with her confusion, not deal with mine. So I kind of pushed my thoughts to the side and just tried to deal with her for a while. In the next few days, as I reflected back on this, I just could not accept it. I thought someone's playing a trick on me. Maybe the emergency room nurses or someone, someone's trying to play with my mind. And I just, I just couldn't understand how that could be. And it wasn't, as I said, until I read Raymond Moody's book in 1975 that I realized this is for real. There's something really going on here. I wish I had been able to interview that patient in more detail and find out what else she experienced besides seeing my spaghetti stain. But by that time, she was long gone, and uh, I had no way of contacting her. That did change me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's a pivotal experience. And, and I, I, th I think the veridical out-of-body experience, those experiences that can be confirmed by third parties, and in this case, you were the third party, and I think the way I approach these is from a legal point of view, that supposing you were to write down your account of what, what you were doing, where you were, and, and what you were wearing, and the fact that you undid your lab coat because it was very hot and so on, 
And then she was also to write down an account of the experiences that she yeah. had. Yeah. And if you if you if you put those together and asked an ind independent judge, do you think these two people are talking about the same event? It would be beyond reasonable doubt that they are. So I think that uh, I like to think that this rigorous legal approach to these case histories there is quite a useful way um, of looking at them because you you can't simply dismiss what you and her, she experienced as as one of those things <laughs> well if it's just one case you can or you can well, dismiss I suppose it as, you, can. as yeah. uh, you know she and I were colluding to fool you about this but Jan Holden at the University of North Texas looked into about a hundred cases of this type from the published literature. And she found that in 92% of them, they were corroborated by a third party as totally accurate. 6% uh, had some accurate and some inaccurate information. Only one was totally, totally wrong. So that's, that's far too many to be dismissed as either coincidence or collusion. Indeed, well, that, that's exactly what I mean by beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then can you can you think of any other key moment of insight in your work in relation to the nature of consciousness? Well, it comes from the, the corroborated experiences, as you mentioned. You know, that first one with the patient who saw my, my spaghetti stain, I, I tended to dismiss that in my mind because I was not in my usual state at the time. I was flustered. I was I was a new green psychiatrist, didn't know what I was doing. So I, I was willing to wish that away as just... Um, my misperception or misunderstanding. But when I had similar accounts later on in my career, they were more uh, more impactful. And one example was a, a fellow I knew who was a, uh, a middle-aged truck driver who had emergency cardiac uh, bypass surgery, quadruple bypass surgery. And in the middle of the operation, he left his body and looked down and saw his surgeon flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. And you know, I'd been a doctor about 30 years at this time. I couldn't imagine that really happened. So I just assumed the patient was hallucinating. But he insisted it was real. So with his permission, I talked to his surgeon. And the surgeon, in a very embarrassed way, admitted that this was true, that he had developed this unique habit of uh, letting his, his assistant start the operation while he got his sterile gowns and gloves on. And then he walked into the operating room and so he wouldn't touch anything that wasn't sterile. He placed his palms flat against his chest. They wouldn't touch anything. And then he pointed things out to his assistants with his elbows. So he wouldn't use his uh. fingers to touch things. And uh, I've never seen another doctor do that. You don't see doctors on television doing that. And yet the patient somehow knew it. And that I just could not dismiss as misperception or misinterpretation. Uh, that was confirmed by the surgeon who was, by the way, a very respected and and not someone to play a joke on you he was a very serious man that kind of thing was, was more impressive to me yeah so these experiences are are unique and intrinsically unlikely in in the sort of detail yeah. um, that you gave in that particular case which is what makes it so strong i think and then i do i do recall i don't know whether you remember this that when you spoke to us in canterbury in 2010 you told a story about a man who was in trouble. He committed suicide in his garden shed. Do you remember that story? Yes, yes. And um, maybe you could tell our listeners that because I think that's a very, very interesting story as well. This was a fellow who uh, had just lost his job. He had financial difficulties. Uh, he was an alcoholic and um, was having marital difficulties as well. 
And he decided in a drunken stupor one day that he was going to end his life. So he went back to his, uh, his shed back in his garden and rigged up a noose around his neck and threw it over one of the rafters. And then he was up on a chair uh, to, to hang himself and he kicked the chair away and started dangling from the rope and then started having this very elaborate experience where he felt he was falling into the pit of hell. And he heard but did not see uh, demons all around him, clawing at him. And he was terrified. So he decided he better get some help. So as he understood it, he left his body and went into the house where his wife was washing the dishes. And he yelled at her that you know, he was hanging in the shed, come get me, help me. And she, I, I talked to her later, she actually heard this inside her head. She heard her husband screaming at her. So she stopped what she was doing, picked up a knife from the kitchen, ran, ran out to the shed, and there he was hanging, and she cut him down, and he survived. And, you know, this is, uh, unless it's an elaborate trick the two of them dreamed up, this is hard to explain. How could she hear him inside her head and then go out and rescue him? I know, I found that a fascinating experience at the time, because there's a, there's a sense in which the thought was telepathically reproduced and received by right. the wife in some in some way, um, which is you know raises the question of the relationship between thoughts and actual ex, you know, physical expression of them through the yes. voice. Yes, Bruce, how does your understanding of consciousness influence the way you live your life? Well, um, or how has uh, it? How's your work changed that? Changed your uh, It has. It has. Uh, and let me say that I, I can't talk about my understanding of consciousness because consciousness I don't understand consciousness. Um, what I do think is that it is not created by the brain. You know, it seems in everyday life that our thoughts are created by the brain. When you get drunk, you don't think very clearly. When you get hit on the head, that affects your thinking. But clearly in experiences like near-death experiences, where the brain is shutting down and people report their thinking and perceptions are more vivid and more realistic than ever, argues that the brain is not the creator of our thoughts. That's maybe the receiver of our thoughts that are created somewhere else where I have no idea where else. But if the brain does not create our thoughts and our consciousness can survive when the brain is not functioning, that raises the question of whether the, the consciousness, the mind, whatever you want to call it, spirit, soul, can still function when the brain has died. That is, is there post-mortem survival? And that has changed the way I think about things. And you know, the vast majority of near-death experiences say that no matter how they describe what happens after death, it's not something to be afraid of. That the condition they're in after they died, after their bodies died, is pleasant if not blissful. And that changes everything I do. And it changes what they do too. You know, I did a study of, of people who made suicide attempts. Because I was concerned as a psychiatrist, if you don't think that death is to be afraid of, is that going to make you more suicidal? So I interviewed people who came to our hospital with suicide attempts and compared those who had near-death experiences as a result of the, of the suicide attempt and those who didn't. And what I found was those who had a near-death experience became much less suicidal than those who didn't have NDEs, which seemed counterintuitive to me. So I asked them, why is it that you're less suicidal? And they said essentially that when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living. 
you're not afraid of losing your life. So you're more involved in, uh, you, you plunge in with both feet, take risks you would have taken otherwise and get the most out of life. And it becomes much more meaningful and fulfilling than it was otherwise. They still have the same problems, but they see them in a different perspective now. They're part of something greater than this body, which has the problems. And they can face life uh, in a much more uh, even-handed and in fact, enjoyable way. And that has affected me over the decades. I can't say there was one time when I uh, switch flipped, but when you hear case after case and thousands after thousands, it gradually convinces you that they're telling the truth. There's something here. And that has changed the way I live my life. Furthermore, these people all come back saying that what they learned in the NDE is that we're all in this together, that you are not separate from other people, we're all interconnected, and that it makes no sense to get ahead at other people's expense. If you hurt other people, you're hurting yourself as well. And for them, the golden rule is no longer a guideline we should strive to follow, but it's a law of nature. They experienced it in the NDE, that when you hurt someone else, you hurt yourself. And that changes how they live their lives. And that's changed my life too. I've tended to absorb this sense from them that this is the way things are in the universe, that we are all interconnected and that you can't separate yourself from other people and that hurting other people will hurt you, does hurt you. And that kind of changes everything we do. Well, I must say you've, you've drawn exactly the same conclusion as I have, which I wrote about in, in uh, Hole in One, Resident yes, 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 Court, with the, the ethic of interconnectedness, the near-death experience and the ethic of interconnectedness. And just before we get to your, your proverb or favourite quote, I just wanted to, to come back to William James, because William James and FCS Schiller and Henri Bergson, they, they, they were talking about this, the possibility that the brain might filter or transmit consciousness in a way in the 1890s uh, and the mainstream still hasn't quite caught up with that it seems to me well, it's getting there i mean this actually goes back to hippocrates 2000 years ago who wrote that the brain is the messenger of the mind okay it's been there for a long time however as you said um the neuroscientific mainstream has not caught up with this and they still think that somehow we don't know how the brain creates the mind. And I should say that after centuries now of trying to study this, they still have no idea how this could be, how a chemical or electrical event in the brain can create a thought. Just no idea at all. But recent research surveys of scientists in Scotland and in Belgium, in Brazil, and the US have shown that 50%, half of all scientists, now believe the mind and the brain are separate things. How oh, fascinating! Uh, that 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 that's really that's really quite encouraging because, as you say, you know, going back to 1842 and Emile de Bois-Raymond, uh, he said that it wouldn't be long before we would understand how the brain creates <laughs> consciousness. Here long about long. 170 years later, and still, yeah. this is what Sir John Eccles called promissory materialism. Yes, yes. In other words, we don't know yet, but we soon will. Right, um, and that is not a scientific statement because it can't be disproven. Exactly. It's it's just it's a bet, really, in a sense. Yes. Bruce, do you do you have a favorite proverb or quote that that you'd like to share with us? You know, I, I can't uh, pick one, uh, but I will tell you a little anecdote. Uh, a little more than a decade ago, I got a chance to go to Dharamsala to a conference that the Dalai Lama had uh, 
convened with Western scientists and Buddhist monks. And he told me that um, Western science and Buddhism are really both empirical disciplines and that you follow the data. And he said that, you know, if the data contradict my beliefs as a Buddhist, I need to change my beliefs. And he said that the way Western science and Buddhism differ is in why they, they study these things. And he said that Western scientists study the nature of the universe in order to control it. Whereas Buddhists study the nature of the universe in order to live more harmoniously with it. And that sort of changed the way I think about research. Now, it's no longer for me, what can we learn about the universe by doing this research? It's more, how can we relieve suffering by doing this research? And if I can't come up with an answer, I don't do it. Very inspiring. It reminds me of the remark by E.F. Schumacher when he said there's a science of manipulation and a science of understanding. And of course, he, he was emphasizing the importance of the science of understanding. And I think we're, 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 we're getting, getting to the short straw with our science and economics <laughs> of uh, manipulation. Um, and we, that needs to change, I think. And then is there any advice you give your younger self from your vantage point in life now? Well, I would just say, uh, don't be so arrogant as to think you know the answers or even the path to the answers, but keep an open mind and just follow where the data go take you. Well, I think you took that advice at the time, Bruce. Uh, so thank you so much for joining Imaginal Inspirations. And thank good you, luck with uh, the further promotion of your book. Thank you. It's been a delight talking to you. <laughs>